You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for March 26, 2023, the fifth Sunday in Lent. Today's sermon was given by the Reverend Peter Walsh. It's based on John chapter 11, verses 1 through 45. Welcome again to all of you and to those of you who are streaming with us this morning. As many of you know, some of you know, I was rocked by the death of Frank Griswold, the former presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church. The most important thing to know about Frank is not his position in the church, but the disposition of his soul. Frank was a holy man. He was a contemplative. He was a mystic. He rose every morning in the dark to soak and bathe in prayer and scripture. He dwelled in the divine mysteries. He had the mind of an Oxford theologian and the soul of a desert father. He articulated the faith through the lens of experience. He knew God, he knew the divine love, and he lived a life of love. He was a man of courage who, like Luther, took a stand. He led in stillness while the storm just raged around him. He wore a bulletproof vest to ordain the first openly gay bishop in the Anglican, Catholic, and Orthodox churches. He led our denomination to a more godly place. And he was humble and funny with a quick and quixotic sense of humor, all dressed in the refined clothing of his upbringing. In his retirement, he traveled the world teaching And he also brought his grandkids to the doctor and to the dentist and waited for them in the lobby. And the last time I spoke with him, he told me that he was more in love with his wife after 58 years of marriage than ever before. Her visits to him in the infirmary were like an angel coming to visit with him. He was a man of love, and he was loved and beloved, and he had great fondness and respect for Reverend Elizabeth, who he got to meet when she was a chaplain at a school where his grandson went. And many of you will remember his visit with us in 2019, where he was incredibly enlivened by all of you, the congregation, and he said that it gave him great hope for the church. And he marveled at the preparations for the world's greatest Christmas pageant, where there was a coconut girl who would do this on the way down the aisle with the Holstein camel. He also marveled that there were men in French cuffs who were sweating wildly as they put up the stage. And he took our honorarium, and two weeks later he went to Cuba to teach. I knew in my heart that uh, Frank was dying, sorry. Um, And the last time I spoke with him, I was taken back. He had just gotten out of the hospital. I'd wonder why I didn't return my email. And he had just gotten out of the hospital and he was very short of breath and he had that sort of nasal blower that they put in your, your nose to help your lungs. And I asked him if he would get well and would he go to New Hampshire again and would he cut wood And he said yes to New Hampshire, but he thought not about cutting the wood. And then he said, another thing to relinquish. And he said it 
as somebody who had read about relinquishing in a book and was now beginning to live it, it was almost as though he was a child living into a story that he had read about. He was on my mind a lot, and because I was so just ridiculously busy, I didn't reach out to him. And I knew even if I did reach out to him, it was not likely that he would be able to respond and then on the afternoon when we said goodbye uh, gloriously to Justin and to Jewel, I was at the office, it was just cleaning up things, and Jill told me that Frank had died. And those of you who know me, uh, I did as I do, and I cussed loudly, uh, and I went to my office and cussed some more. I was angry that Frank had died and I was angry that I had not reached out to him in the previous two weeks. And I was reminded of my mother, who when I did things wrong, she used to say, it's a bitter pill. And it was a double bitter pill. I went home and Jennifer was at the counter typing. She didn't even turn around and look at me. And I walked in the door and she said, are you all right? And I said, Frank, died. So I went upstairs and I uh, got to the bathroom and I sat on the floor of the bathroom and I just wept. His death was for me a great devastation, an irreplaceable love lost. And even as I spoke to my wife Jennifer, I said I was lonely without him. I had the experience of being loved by him and that was beyond accounting. And I knew at that moment that there was no one who would know my innards and love me as he had. He was my spiritual director and I spoke to him about the spiritual inward intimacies of my life and also the struggles and exhaustions of my life and the decisions I had to make, and he understood it all, and he handled it all with a very deft touch of pragmatic love. When I spoke to him, he was like a bomb in my Gilead and a grace to my inner space, and he was my friend, and I loved him, and now he was dead, and I just wept. And Martha, she wept, and Mary wept, and the mourners from Jerusalem, they wept. It says in the Greek that they wailed. And when Jesus got to the grave, he wept. And it says that Jesus wept that inward, silent, deep weeping. And Jesus loved Lazarus. There's two words used to describe Jesus' love for him. One is that he loved him like a brother, Philia, Philadelphia. And he also loved him as God loves, agape. And the pathos in the story that Reverend Elizabeth just read is it's chewy. And there's this cauldron of emotions that are overwhelming and complex. And Mary is angry and Martha is angry. You can see this 
As Jesus comes up the hill from Jericho on the backside of the Mount of Olives to Bethany where they live, and Martha, who is the older sister and the boss, she goes out and greets Jesus before he gets to town. And there are ritual greetings, but she skips them, and she begins with an accusation and a statement laced with anger. Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. Mary gives the same greeting when she comes out too. The sisters are on the same page. And Jesus is angry too. It says that he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved, but the translation translation from the Greek is super tough. Sometimes it says he groaned in spirit and shuddered, but the Greek word connotes indignation and not sorrow. It has an edge to it sternness, a negative edge. He is angry. He is irritated. He is pissed. He is really undone. And the word also has in it the word used for the snorting of a beast of burden. And it's not clear exactly what Jesus is angry about. Perhaps he's angry at the whole world, the world of sin that leads to death. He's angry about his friend. He's just angry about everything. And we might translated that he was so angry that his body trembled and groans were wrung from his heart. And in the midst of this anger, he says, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. These are the exact words that Jesus used on the shores of the Jordan River to call the first disciples. And then it says, Jesus wept. In his weeping, he reveals for us a a God of compassion. The Greek God was apatheo, no no passion at all. And and the compassionate God weeps. And I know that so many of you have wept. And some of you have wept over the death of your husband. Some of you have wept over the death of your your wife or your brother or your brother-in-law, your son-in-law, your sister. You've wept over your best friend from childhood dying. And I'm absolutely sure that you've been angry too, that indignation where your body quakes a post-mortem negotiations, angry at doctors or yourself or a situation or just, just angry, all mixed in the cauldron with sorrow. But there's other stuff mixed in the cauldron besides anger and sorrow. There's also faith. And we see that when Martha greets Jesus and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And then Martha has that incredible confession of faith that she never gets credited for. Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. And Mary, she also has this faith. It says that when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet. This is a terrible translation. Terrible. Turns it into pablum. She didn't kneel at his feet. The Greek has it that she heaved herself and threw herself at Jesus' feet. We see this over and over that Mary, Mary's spiritual senses are so enlivened that the holiness of Jesus 
is overwhelming for her. We hear at the beginning of the passage that she's the one who wiped the Lord's feet with perfume in her hair. Her devotion to Jesus is biblical in every sense. So we have an epic tale of suffering and revelation. Jesus descends into the human pit and the pain, and yet he towers over it. But this story is not about Martha, and it's not about Mary, and it's not about Lazarus. It's about Jesus and what God is doing in Jesus. It's the sign of what God is doing in Jesus. Note that this is no short miracle story you could tell from the five minutes that Reverend Elizabeth was reading. This is not like the raising of the dead son of Jairus or the raising of the dead son of the widow at Niam. This is the climactic sign in the book of signs in John's gospel. This is the seventh of seven signs. And the difference between a miracle and a sign is that a miracle points toward the event and a sign points toward the person of Jesus. A sign is a revelation from God and it answers the question of who is Jesus that we might know him and that we might have life in his name. And if we're not careful, we'll, we'll confuse the climax of the story with the most dramatic element of the story. The climax of the story is in the conversation about resurrection between Jesus and Martha. They're having this conversation about resurrection. Martha is a pious woman and she has all the beliefs, the pharisaical beliefs about resurrection at the end of time. And Jesus doesn't deny any of those, but then he drops the shocking statement on her when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. It's, it's, we've heard this so many times, it would almost be hard for us to hear it again for the first time and how shocking this would be. I mean, obviously Jesus is not talking about physical life. He's talking about the spiritual plane and the life of the soul. And his statement is an act of self-revelation. It's a divine gift. And if you think about it, it is the climax of the story. The burial office in the Episcopal Church does not even mention the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But this statement is the primary statement of Christian belief about life after death. This, these are the first sentences in the burial office. The proclamation that I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. This is the proclamation that in Christ, the devastation of death does not win. This is the promise that Jesus gives to us. And this is why Jesus does not heal Lazarus. It's why Jesus delays in coming up the hill. It's why he waits four days where he is deader than dead. And it's why he brings the disciples with him when they think they're gonna get killed. Because when he brings the disciples with him, he brings all of us. He knows that we need this. And we are gonna need it when our son or our daughter dies. That's when we need this. And our faith is not in an unknowable distant God. It is not a philosophy. 
It is not a positive psychology that you can take in college. Our faith is in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who incarnates the life of God and embodies all of the faith and hope of the Hebrew people and is the vehicle for the action of God. And the raising of Lazarus from the dead is the verification of what Jesus is trying to reveal to us. So in the book of signs, Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and he fed 5,000 people. He said, I am the light of the world, and he gave a man who was born congenitally blind, he gave him sight. And now he says, I am the resurrection, and he gives his friend who he loves life again. The sign points toward Jesus. And the raising of Lazarus is certainly one of the most dramatic of the events recorded about Jesus' life. And we're told that when he gets to the grave, again, it says that he is emotionally disturbed. He is angry. He is agitated. This is not the serene Jesus of an airbrushed picture in my fourth grade Sunday school class at St. Thomas the Apostle in Del Mar, New York. This is a man who is charged. He is charged. And he says, roll back the stone. Martha, only Martha, the oldest sister, the boss, says, Lord. As it says in the King James Version, he stinketh. He's been in there four days. There's no embalming. His body is already decomposing. And Jesus is not interested in her insights. He is not interested in Martha talking. And he fires back, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Bam! This is a divine smackdown for Martha's speaking at the wrong time. The stone weighs about 2,000 pounds. They roll the stone back. We have that whole piece where Jesus has clearly prayed and then he prays to the Father out loud, but he says he prays for the sake of the crowd. And so anytime he does anything for the sake of, a phrase used many times in the scripture, it's for our sake. This story is for us. And it says he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and his feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. This is the exact same burial clothing that in two weeks we're going to find neatly put away in another cave where Jesus lay. And Lazarus, whose body stinketh, walks out of that tomb like an Egyptian mummy walking out of the pyramids. And it is a full-on freakout. And then Jesus delivers a mic dropper line, unbind him and let him go. One of the other translations I love more, unbind him and set him free. And then it says that those from Jerusalem believed and some did not. Or some went off and told what had happened. And ironically, this event leads to Jesus' death. But what the scripture is saying to us is that Jesus is the Lord of life 
and of death. The death has no dominion over Jesus. The old preachers in the Protestant tradition used to say, the reason he said Lazarus come out was because if he didn't say Lazarus, all the graves would have opened and everybody would have come out. What Jesus is telling us is that he is seeking to unbind our souls and to set us free to know that because he is the resurrection and the life, we too shall be resurrected and have life. That the dismal death of devastation is not a death into nothingness, but it is a death into life and the participation in the divine life of God. This is Jesus' revelation to us. And it is what we all need. You can find more sermons on our website, www.stmarksnewcanon.org.